Hola! This episode of the Rock Aussie podcast is actually hosted by Ed and Bristol, who are glorious and experts in most things relating to integrative ecology, restoration, species identifying, hobbies, all that good stuff. They have some really good word pictures to paint for you. And if you have any questions about the ideas that they're talking about, the theories that they're talking about, or you just want, for example, a book recommendation about something that they discuss, please Send us your comments. They will certainly, hopefully, if we are all very good and supportive, send us another episode and we will get to listen to their brilliance again. This is a wonderful episode and I hope that you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. My name's Ed and I'm here with my better three quarters. (laughs) Uh, My name's Bristol. We're here today doing a guest podcast for Rockosophy. So my background in a nutshell is um, wildlife biology and right now I am a middle school science teacher and I am a restoration ecologist been recreating habitat all across the country mostly in Illinois and now in Oregon and we're also both amateur naturalists Uh, we started well I started getting into birds after I took an ornithology class in university and got it into birds and you were already into plants. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. And God, what was the next thing? Oh, it's all kinds of things. Yeah, butterflies, dragonflies, bumblebees. You got into bumblebees. I got into moths. Lichens. Oh yes, and mosses. Reptiles, amphibians. Yes. Really any taxa that is readily identifiable. We may or may not have a universal life list. Uh, some birders keep track of their lifers, the bird species that they see in their lifetime. We do that as well, but we also keep track of our Lepidoptera, butterflies and moths, our reptiles, our amphibians, our plants. Fungi. Fungi. <laughs> Pretty much everything. Mammals. We just added a new mammal to our mammal list, which was the brush rabbits. Very oh, exciting. That was very exciting. They only live on the Oregon coast or the Pacific Northwest coast? Oh, I think they get down to Baja, but yeah, coastal species. Mm-hmm. Very secretive. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. So, how did you get interested in so many different taxa? That's actually a good question. The birding started off Partially as, you know, desire to kind of understand more. It's it's really rewarding to kind of see a bird fly by and just know what it is. Um, but I will not deny that there was a significant competitive factor. Because, oh, was there? Yeah, because once you start listing, if you have somebody who is also listing, um, it, uh, it kind of inevitably turns into a competition maybe. So... For something like five years, I think you were winning because you had more birds on your life list than I did. And then, God, was it when I went to Minnesota that I surpassed you? Mm-hmm. And I, are we even or are you winning again? It's not a competition. But if it were, <laughs> I would be winning by two. By two? By two. What was the two? I know you got Barn Owl. Um, Williamson Sapsucker. Oh, you turd. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, you were the that one was, who found it for me. I, yeah, I was. That was, yeah, that, was a, that was a good day out in the woods. Uh-huh. That was a good bird. That was a very, very handsome bird. Any day you get a lifer is a good day out in the woods. Mm-hmm. So that was birds. Was 
kind of competitive, but then over time you just kind of get better at it. And I also had like jobs that were working with birds and surrounded by people who were into birds and you just kind of get into it. Um, other things, I think you start getting into bees and butterflies and I can ask you about that in a moment. Um, so I was kind of getting into those and then I think what the transition was um, for getting into other taxa was when I started working at a um, kind of like a summer camp but it was during the school year and they did field trips for kids that came out and the teachers could sign them up for something like six different classes and we had a ton of different classes they could choose from and among those were things like the microforest and um, there was a bunch of different materials so that you know we the instructors could teach ourselves about these subjects so that we could then teach them to the kids. So I ended up learning a lot about the microforest, which is um, when I started getting interested in things like mosses and lichens because they're really cool. And um, I think moths came along because um, one day there was a Ceanothus uh, silk moth on the side of the lodge. And if you've never seen those before, they are huge. They're the size of your hand and they're gorgeous. They could probably be mistaken for butterflies, but they have the you know really stereotypical fuzzy antenna and they're just super, super awesome. So then I started kind of looking into moths and if you just kind of leave your porch, night, porch light on, you will see a lot of different kinds and there's so many pretty ones. And so anyways, now I'm into moths. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, it just kind of keeps going. Honestly, we made the mammal list almost as an afterthought. Like, they're so secretive, and you never see them. And like, butterflies well, and birds are so So you would think at first, you know, we're so accustomed to seeing mammals that you don't really think about them. But then you start flipping through a book and you realize, oh man, there's a lot more diversity here than I thought. And... I mean, backing it up, everything's kind of like that. You know, if you if you're not into birds, you know, think about how many different birds you can name. Yeah, you know, I I can think back to the time before I was interested in birds, and it would have been something like, okay, I know robins and ducks, penguin, and yeah, penguin, ostrich, a hawk. <laughs> but then you start looking at it, and you realize, holy smokes, there's you know, 40 different species of ducks around here. There's a dozen different kinds of hawks. It just really opens your eyes to how much you're missing. Mm -hmm. And when I go for a walk in the woods now, being familiar with all these different species, I just get so much more out of a stroll through mm -hmm. the woods. I kind of think of it as, it's, it's like going from just seeing kind of a blur of green to being able to see all the individual trees and as you kind of add more, um, you know, more naturalist um, specialties, I guess, to your repertoire, it just becomes an ever richer experience to go outside. Oh, and it's, it's super it's rewarding. endless. Yeah. No one could possibly hold all the taxa in their head at once. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of... We kind of specialize between the two of us. Yeah, like you can take plants. Uh-huh, and you can take mosses. And, you know, when I find a cool moss, I'll drag you over and you can tell me all about it. And... Stair-step moss. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nancy's no. tree moss. 
vice versa. But there's there's some good practical reasons to start acquainting yourself with the diversity of life that's out there. For me, as a restoration ecologist, it started back when I was working in Illinois. We were doing all these restorations and across you know, there's, you know, several different kinds of habitats that we customarily worked with trying to restore. We were propagating between four and five hundred different species of plants. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're a botany nerd, that's great. For the, for the handful of people out there who are uh-huh. botany nerds. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, I had, I had some colleagues know. who were into birds and some colleagues who were into butterflies. And, yeah, just talking to them, it started to get me thinking, okay, we're putting all this effort into growing these hundreds of different species of plants. You know, what, what good are they actually doing on the ground? You know, we have this idea that they are helping something. They're helping wildlife or, you know, the idea, just a generalized sense that, oh, yeah, biodiversity is good. But I had seldom stopped to think about, you know, okay, what are the actual tangible consequences of planting 200 species in a restoration versus planting a dozen? So let me paint you a little picture here. There's a plant that is critically endangered, uh, Castilea levisecta. Also called golden paintbrush. Yes. 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 Uh huh. <laughs> and it used to grow throughout the Willamette Valley in Oregon, but agricultural conversion pretty much eliminated all of its habitat and it disappeared. My familiar story. Yep. Tales old as time. But luckily, it was not completely wiped out. There were still populations in Washington and British Columbia. And ecologists went and collected seed from those sites further north and have reintroduced populations back into Oregon. And overall, it's a success story. They have lots of viable populations now. However, many of these populations have experienced gradual declines over time. So what typically happens They'll introduce a bunch of seed to a site, and the paintbrush flourishes for a few years and then kind of tapers off. In some cases, it disappears entirely. In most cases, it just kind of lingers. And in a few cases, it's still successful. Uh, The population remains large enough to sustain itself. But it's still kind of an open question whether or not these populations are truly self-sustaining in the long term. They certainly seem viable in the short to midterm, at least some of them, but no one is quite sure whether or not these populations are secure enough to merit delisting yet. So, you know, I, I've visited these populations and, you know, I got to thinking, you know, what, what could possibly be contributing to these declines? Because a lot of the elements that we look for in a successful reintroduction are present. Uh, 
where they've been reintroduced. The hydrology is still intact. The soils are still healthy. So everything that a plant should need to grow is there on site. And yet, in so many cases, they just kind of dwindle and possibly disappear over time. So you and I have spent many a long afternoon just sitting and observing these plants. And if you sit for long enough, inevitably you will see lots of insects moving around on the plants, in particular bumblebees. The bumblebees are the primary pollinator for this species. However, paintbrushes are fleeting. They bloom in the spring and by midsummer they're kind of done. They shrivel up, they set their seed, and that's it. Bumblebees, on the other hand, are active throughout the whole growing season. So even though it's a pollinator bonanza in these Castilea populations in the spring, there's almost nothing for the bumblebees to eat later in the year. And we kind of saw that too, like as, as we watched everything through um, through the summer, the number of wildflowers in the area kind of like disappeared to nothing. By the time it was high summer, there wasn't a lot blooming out there. Yeah, it's... just dead and crispy all around. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that you know plants do not exist in a vacuum. They're part of a dynamic environment that includes everything from the soil, the water, the atmosphere, up to and including all the other organisms from microscopic you know, soil bacteria all the way up to insects and mesofauna and megafauna. They're all interacting in this enormously complex web. And if you don't think about habitat from that kind of zoomed out overarching perspective, you're liable to miss some of these connections and so, I have no idea if this is true, but what we hypothesize <laughs> is that the bumblebees are ineffective at pollinating the paintbrush because they have no food throughout the rest of the season. They might come and visit in the spring, but if they have no flowers to visit throughout the rest of the year, then the bumblebee populations are going to be suboptimal. They'll yeah, decline or they might move away from that area. Right. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's definitely still bumblebees around and you'll find them on the paintbrush. But the real question is whether there's enough bumblebees to be providing enough pollination to keep the paintbrush population going year after year after year. Is there enough viable seed being produced every year to sustain the population? That's the real question. And like I said, I have no idea if that's the actual culprit behind the declines in these paintbrush populations. It's probably multivariate, but um, this seems to be kind of the low-hanging fruit. If the pollinators aren't around, then the plants cannot produce seed. Full stop. And the real kicker is that most of these sites are restorations. 
They used to be agricultural fields, and at some point an ecologist came in with a plan and introduced the paintbrush along with a handful of other species, essentially designed this ecosystem from the ground up. But there was a problem in their design. They only included a handful of plants, maybe 15, 20 species total, all of them spring bloomers. No thought was given to uh, feeding insects later in the year. So you have this beautiful proliferation of wildflowers in the spring, and then absolutely nothing for the remaining nine, ten months out of the year. And, and, and there are options. There's like asters and what else blooms later on in the season that folks might be oh, familiar golden with. Oh, goldenrods, sunflowers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's possibilities, but the problem is that these restorations were designed with one thing in mind, and that was reintroducing paintbrush. And, you know, they were met with some success, but they were not designed with any other organism in mind. And as we talked about a moment ago, if you don't have those other organisms in mind in your design phase, then you're missing whole segments of the ecosystem. You're missing potentially vital connections that keep all these species afloat. They reinforce one another. They keep each other going to some extent. I mean, this is kind of common sense, right? Like, you know, in middle school, we all learn about food webs and trophic levels, right? You teach that to your kids. God, I try. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, we, we talk about food webs and trophic levels and, um, you know, things like mutualism and competition and, and things like that. Um, I don't know if these are always kept in mind with some of these restorations though like there's I mean they're goal. these are principles that you know restoration practitioners are certainly aware of but they're just very difficult to implement sometimes it can be inordinately expensive to try to incorporate more species into your planting I deal with this all the time when I'm designing restorations you got to factor in the amount of labor it takes to go out and find a plant and watch it closely to make sure you can harvest the seed when it's ripe and then have someone go out and pick it and then have someone process it and clean it. Uh, it's really challenging. And if you ever you know, look around for native seeds online, they can be really expensive. We're talking hundreds of dollars an ounce. So... If you can imagine some of these landscapes, particularly in the West where you know, a practitioner might be trying to restore hundreds, possibly thousands of acres at a time, uh, you can just imagine how quickly the price tag climbs for that kind of planting. Mm-hmm. So it, in many cases, it's infeasible to try to take this you know, broad, integrative approach to your ecological restorations. I would say that's also just not like part of the conversation because that's not the goal that is always in mind, particularly here out west where we have these massive tracts of land compared to the Midwest, um, where the goal might be, you know, something more like mitigation or just right. getting sagebrush out there and like, hey, the sagebrush is all coming from what, Wyoming? It mm-hmm. doesn't even, the, the sagebrush that is planted in massive restorations is 
not even... It's usually Wyoming stock because that's right. what's economical to grow. Uh, that's a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Right. But so long as it's green for most of these places, like it's good to go. Or um, one of the, you know, in, um, in the Willamette Valley, there's wildlife refuges out there where a lot of them are just planted in grass because they were trying to help out the, uh, what, the dusky Canada goose, right. I think, because it was on the decline. And so they have this non-native grass planted in so many acres. <laughs> right. So that's, you know, yet another perfect example of conducting a restoration with single species conservation in mind. Planting non-native grass for geese or planting sagebrush of you know, origin potentially thousands of miles from your restoration site for the sake of, you know, say, sage grouse or uh, prairie dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, you also sometimes have the opposite problem. So in the Midwest, um, I would say that the restorations are more focused because there is a lot less of the wild places left and and folks are you know trying to bring those back or restore them as as best they possibly can um but oftentimes you get people who are concentrating on just sheer number of species and you had some thoughts on that i believe oh yeah so that brings us to another interesting point um doing a phylogenetic analysis of restorations which is where you look at the species that have been planted in a given restoration and you figure out you know, taxonomically how they are distributed. And there's kind of a phenomenon in Illinois at least called the knee-high prairie, which is, um, or the waist-high prairie rather, which is where people go around and they collect the seed that is waist-high. It's really easy. They don't have to bend over. They don't have to reach up real high. You just get all these species that are waist high, which tends to be lots of things in the composite family, Asteraceae. Oh, so like asters and sunflowers and stuff, and you might miss like violets because they're, you know, three inches high. Exactly. And so you end up with these plantings that, you know, maybe they have 100 plus species, which on paper looks great. But if... 40 of those species are all in the aster family, and another, you know, 30 of them are legumes. Or grasses. Right. You end up with, you know, realistically, rather poor taxonomic representation, which is a problem for a lot of other organisms. You think about, you know, different beetles or aphids or wasps that specialize on a single family or perhaps even a single genus of plants. So I had said, like, maybe you miss the violets because they're four inches high. What specializes on violets? Uh, fritillary butterflies. Ooh, so now you've, you're missing all your fritillary, fritillaries. Right. <laughs> fritillary is something different. <laughs> Which are really important pollinators for a whole bunch of other species, but their caterpillars only feed on the leaves of violets. Mm-hmm. So... Even if you have just you know raw diversity in your mix, you also need to be conscious of it being you know taxonomically diverse as well, mm-hmm. having lots of different families and genera represented. Yeah. So it's a really <laughs> complicated problem here. Yep, our our uh, kind of idea, which who knows how 
how easy or difficult this would be to um, to start, but like you would almost need a, a team of people for restorations that cover all these different specialties, like a butterfly person, a beetle person, a botanist, uh, an ornithologist, somebody who maybe is interested in the little mammals that scurry around on the ground and, and do stuff. Right, make it more of a collaborative effort. Right. Which, you know, credit where it's due, uh, that is the direction that a lot of agencies are moving toward. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, toward, I mean, just in the 10 or so years that I've been doing this, there's definitely been an evolution hmm. toward just bringing in more specialists, more experts. And they might not have a direct hand in designing or implementing a restoration, but they might have a say in the process, particularly early on, just to make the practitioner who is doing the work, just you know, at least make them aware of what these other organisms might need in order to thrive in these plantings. So somebody, maybe uh, somebody calls in a butterfly expert and they're like, yeah, you if you want fritillaries, which are in trouble, um, then you're going to need to go find some violet seed when ordinarily right. you might even, you might not even, you know, think about making the effort because there's just so many other things to think about. A perfect example of this is thistles. A lot of thistles are non-native, and I would never <laughs> consider putting them in a restoration, but the native ones that we do have tend to be less conservative. They you know, show up on the edges of farm fields, along roadways. Weedy natives. Weedy natives, exactly. So I, you know, in the past I was of the mindset like, oh, you know, the, they're around. Like, I don't need to throw thistles into my planting because you can find those elsewhere. But I started talking to bumblebee experts. Uh, Barbara? Barbara, yeah. Uh, <laughs> She's cool. Recognize that you know, this was in the wake of the Rusty Patch Bumblebee being Rust federally listed. Rusty Butts. Little Rusty Butts, For yeah. Those in the know. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> well, I found a population on one of my sites that I happened to be planning a restoration for. It was really fortuitous. And I decided to reach out to a local Bumblebee expert and just get their input. Like, hey, you know, I, I have this restoration I'm cooking up. I'd like to throw a little something special in there for the bumblebees. I've seen, you know, bumblebees pollinating all these other species, but is there any, you know, silver bullet? Like, what can I throw in the mix to help out the rusty patch bumblebee? And the answer is thistles. Sure. Thistles are bumblebee candy. They love it. And sure enough, I start looking around. Every single thistle was just humming with activity. <laughs> so, you know, a whole... Uh, genus that I had completely overlooked in my restoration design because, you know, I kind of thumbed my nose at them. Like, oh, those are <laughs> just They're weedy. weedy. Yeah. We'll get in there. Um, but they, they have a really important role to play in the ecology of these prairies. So, I, like we said before, no single naturalist can hold all this information in their head. Although we're, by God, we're going to try. <laughs> we're, we're making the effort. <laughs> but it just goes to show, you know, how important it is to, you know, have these connections to other specialists that, 
you know, have knowledge that you might not and can really bring something to the table. Otherwise, it's just so easy to miss, you know, some of these really vital relationships that, um, you know, we're just blind to, usually because the species is not showy or the relationship occurs on such a small scale that we scarcely even notice that it exists. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully the trend continues, more experts being called in and restorations continue to improve as they have generally over time. Yeah, we get better and better at it every year, but I just, you know, in hindsight, I it just amazes me how quickly the practices are evolving. Mm. Yeah, and that's well, this is probably another whole conversation, but that's probably mostly in um, more private organizations like land trusts and watershed associations and things like that. Oh yeah, you know the the big agencies, the you know state and federal organizations, they have a reputation for kind of getting stuck in their ways. Hidebound is that the uh-huh. word they're looking for? Yeah. <laughs> Um, not to badmouth those agencies. They, yeah, they, they do a lot of good work. and I, On a bigger scale, often. Exactly. So, you know, you're talking about you know, conserving species. You really have to often think about how you're going to protect you know, large areas, thousands or millions of acres, if you want to have viable populations that are self-sustaining. So you can't leave you know, those big agencies out of the picture either. But... You know, quite frankly, some of the best restoration work that's being done right now is uh, on the local level. County level organizations, land trusts, um, they, they're really blazing the way for uh, these you know, new and improved methodologies. And uh, it's really important to kind of <laughs> get the word out to some of these larger agencies. So support your local agencies, if possible. Oh, yeah. Become a member, get involved, all that good stuff. So what would you call this new approach if it uh, became more widespread? <laughs> oh, we've debated about this. I think it's a holistic kind of method. God, I <laughs> loathe that term. It's <laughs> Holistic ecology. It's so you know, meaningless nebulous in a scientific sense. Okay, so what do you want to call it? I, I'm i more partial to integrative ecology, personally. Right. Integrative ecology. Yeah. The wave of the future. Uh-huh. <laughs> Alright, any, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I'd say just pick up a field guide, preferably something that you have no familiarity with. Uh, just get out there and start learning about uh, other species because I guarantee you will develop a whole new appreciation for the natural world. Mm-hmm. Although I, I do maybe recommend starting with birds because they're, they're just an easy they're, group to yeah, start with. They're, they're fun. They're easy to find. And there's also a big and pretty supportive community if you have questions or you know, want to join a you know, group or something. Yeah. yeah. Butterflies are good too. Yes. That's yeah. a, a growing hobby. Although prepare to run around fields like an idiot with a butterfly net, it's 
not graceful <laughs> speaking from experience no but that's a good point to bring up you know bird watching you need at minimum a good pair of binoculars yeah fair enough but butterflies that's cheap to get into yeah how about plants mm. plants can be tricky you yeah they're hard there are like really rewarding yeah there's good introductory guides um is it timberline that makes the pacific northwest guide yeah if you pick up just you know like a regional wildflower guide that has color photos Mm. that's a good way to start yeah i agree yeah it's been fun yeah all right (laughs) all right well thanks for listening yeah get outside keep learning folks